And you can join me in prayer as we pray and enter even more fully into worship and to hearing God's word this morning. <clears throat> God, we thank you that you are alive and speaking to each of us. We pray that as we approach the hearing of your word, the reading of your word this morning, that you would speak to each of us what we need to hear, that we would be alert and attentive to what you have for us today. Amen. I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste it shall not be pruned or hoed, and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds so that no rain will rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Um, and today our gospel reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. And in this, Jesus tells a parable. Uh, in this parable, he takes the passage from Isaiah that Brian just read and takes it to new and unexpected places. Listen to the word of God. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and other high religious leaders. And he says this, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. 
Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. Join me in prayer. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Amen. When I was in college, my roommate had nightmares. And these were regular occurrence for him. And more specifically, he had the same nightmare over and over and over. And in his nightmare, the room he was in was on fire. And he couldn't get out. And this nightmare was, was bad enough, but for him, it was actually based in reality. Two summers before, he had a job where he did odd jobs for a family friend. He would mow the lawn or do other acts of physical labor. And then that summer, one of the jobs that he had involved stain. It may have been staining a deck. It may have been staining the siding. But this process involved using rags that were soaked with this stain. And its liquid form, this stain was incredibly flammable. And after one day of work, he took the rags that he used for the work that day, and he put them in a bucket and left them in the garage. I'm a bit muddled on what happened next, but essentially that night, the rags spontaneously combusted. I think that what happened was in the warm summer heat, the rag was heated to its ignition point through slow oxidation. But the rags caught fire and burnt down the garage. Now in this scenario, my roommate actually didn't do anything wrong. He was following the instructions that he was given. It was this freak outcome that had horrible consequences. And overall, he was a pretty good sport about it. It was something that he talked about. Uh, it was a mean of self-deprecation. He would often joke about how he burnt his boss's house down. But deep down, this troubled him. And this was a person that was a kind person. He was a caring person. He was a conscientious person. And it pained him that he was involved with something that had such huge consequences. Hence, these dreams that he had over and over and over again. He was embarrassed and saddened by what he did on accident, that deep down he felt he was entrusted with something and he failed. He was given a responsibility and it led to horrible consequences. In a lighter example, during my junior year of high school, I was invited to a formal dance at a school that I didn't attend. I knew the girl through a, a regional club that we were both involved in. And although we knew each other semi-well, we weren't super close and I'd never met her family. To top it off, this was my very first formal dance. To put it 
in the simplest terms, I was nervous. And this girl that I went to the dance with, she actually lived a couple of hours away from me. So my parents had to drive me up there and they, they dropped me off at her place. Then I went in, I met her parents and, and chatted a bit, got some pictures. And then it was time to leave, to go to dinner and go to the dance. And as we're walking out to the car, um, they looked at me and actually offered me the keys to the car. I said, hey, Kyle, would you like to drive? Now, this family was a bit wealthier than I was, and they were handing me the keys to a brand new BMW. Now, I was already nervous, but this freaked me out, and not in a good way. I mean, there were far too many firsts going on here, and I was a new driver in a city I didn't know well, and here I was being offered the keys to a brand new BMW, and I couldn't do it. It was too much for me. All that I could picture in that situation was all the ways I would do something horrible to that car. And although they didn't know me, they trusted me. And it's probably because they trusted their daughter, but I just couldn't reciprocate. It was too much, too soon. And so I passed on it. What do we do with the responsibilities entrusted to us? In many ways, this is the question of adolescence and adulthood. Ideally, we are individuals who are able to take on more and more responsibilities. And people are willing to grant us more and more trust because we are people of our word. We do what we say we will accomplish. We do our best work all of the time. When things are given to us, we take care of them. Our word is truthful. But what happens when we break that trust? What happens when we fail in our responsibilities? Even worse, what if we outright reject and purposely neglect those responsibilities? What then becomes of us? And that's what today's parable is about. It's about purposeful neglect. And then it asks that scary question, what becomes of those people who know who God is, who knows what God is like, who knows what God is calling us to do, but reject it in favor of something else, while at the same time trying to maintain a public innocence. It's nothing good. And Jesus does this through teaching another parable. It's about a rich vineyard owner who builds up his vineyard land with a fence. He equips it with a wine press and a watchtower, and he leases it to tenant farmers and departs on a journey. And as the harvest approaches, he sends slaves to collect fruit. The tenant farmers beat, kill, and stone these, these slaves who are sent to collect the produce. And so the master sends more slaves, and the same thing happens. And finally, the master sends his son, believing that his son will be respected. The tenant farmers, though, seize his son and kill him. The main story of this parable is the landowner. The landowner is conscientious. The first thing we learn about this landowner is that the landowner plants a vineyard, puts a fence around it, digs a wine press around it, and builds a watchtower. The landowner is doing everything 
that it takes to generate a harvest. One of the things that's been interesting this, this past year of, of um, with, with COVID out there, we've seen an increase of people attempting to plant their own gardens at home. I know I've never been much of a gardener, but I, I've tried this this year as well. I've planted a few things and I took my time with it and I cared for it. I dug the hole. I watched the YouTube videos on how to transplant plants. I added mulch. I pruned them. I gave them the water necessary. I did what was needed. That's what the landowner is doing in this. It's a conscientious landowner. Landowner is doing everything that he can to create a great yield. And the second thing we notice about the landowner is the landowner is patient. You could actually make the case that this pair is a parable of the overly patient landowner. There are times when I read the Bible and I wonder, how was this perceived then? Were things just different then? But I don't think this is one of the scenarios. The landowners and the tenants set up what have, which would have been a fairly normal arrangement. The landowner owned the land, and they farmed the land. And the landowner would have expected a fair share of the yield. And for the tenants to behave as they did would have been shocking. It's shocking for me now, and it would have been shocking then. And the landowner would have been justified in taking drastic measures immediately. It's equally shocking that the landowner didn't. The landowner continued to send more and more messengers all the way up to his son. This paints this picture of an overly patient landowner. And the one thing that's meant to be abundantly clear about this parable is that God is the landowner. That our God is a long-suffering God. We don't need to tiptoe around God, that if our motives are pure, we have nothing to fear, that God isn't waiting around the corner hoping we mess up and then can catch us in the act, that there's this ridiculous patience with God, that God is more than willing to give us chance after chance after chance, but that doesn't mean that we are without responsibility. If God is the landowner, there are other characters at play here, the tenants. The tenants stand in stark contrast to the landowner, where the landowner is patient and kind to almost a fault. The tenants are short-sighted, impulsive, impulsive, violent. They're most interested in what's in it for them. It's almost as if the tenants made a really bad decision seize a slave and things continued to escalate from there and they continued to double down on the bad behavior before hatching a dubious plan, killing the heir so that they will be able to take that share of the inheritance. And this was a foolish and impulsive plan because even if they succeeded, they would never receive this inheritance that they wanted. And the parable ends with a harrowing refrain. So they seized him threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. If this was a movie, the film ended with the death of the sun and the screen going black. There's no resolution. It's just a shocking and bloody end. I would like to imagine that when Jesus gave this parable, 
He then just sat there in silence. Three seconds. Five seconds. 10 seconds, 30 seconds. And with each passing second, the tension grew and grew before he breaks the silence with a question. That rather than giving an ending to the audience, he turns it back to them and asks them a question. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And what would you do in this situation? What would you do if you were my college roommate's boss? Hopefully, you would be kind and forgiving and you'd be able to recognize this as a clear accident. But what if this wasn't an accident? What if my roommate acted out of negligence? What if he acted out of spite? Well, the chief priests had an answer. They said he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. Essentially, these religious leaders said, show no mercy. And Jesus turned the tables on them. You are the tenants. You are the ones entrusted to the vineyard. You are the ones who treated the Landover servants with contempt and violence. Just as you said, your power, position, and place will be taken from you and given to someone else. That God called Israel to be his vineyard, fenced in by the law, grounded in their land, and protected by worship of God in the temple. And he sent his prophets to call the people to faithfulness. But these prophets were rejected. They were beaten, stoned, and killed. And finally, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ. But even to you, he was rejected and killed. And therefore, Jesus says the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to a people who produce the fruits of the kingdom. If one thing is clear about this parable is that God is a patient, long-suffering landowner. But if another thing is to be clear about this parable, the impatient, selfish, and violent tenants in this parable were the religious leaders of the time. That God had tasked them with the care and nurture of Israel. Yet time and time again, they neglected this responsibility for power, position, and privilege. And it was this repeated abuse of responsibility that after multiple warnings finally led to their last chance. That God was going to take away their position and give it to those who could handle the responsibility with the care it deserved. And the chief priests and the Pharisees realized that they were being rejected. Yet they weren't in any way ready to repent. Instead, they wanted to arrest Jesus. They knew that the crowds regarded him as a prophet. So just as they refused to answer Jesus' question returning concerning John the Baptist, they do not know what they would like to do because they feared the crowds. Just as Herod had John the Baptist killed because he feared losing face, the chief priests and the Pharisees feared the crowd because they knew that their power depended on lies. Over the past few years, uh, my wife Lindsay and I have been watching the NBC sitcom The Good Place. And whenever a new season appears on Netflix, we, we gobble the show up. 
I frequently describe this show as a miracle, that it amazes me how a show so funny and smart and have so much heart that addresses these huge questions of life, death, and the afterlife while openly quoting and discussing philosophers from Plato to Kierkegaard to Immanuel Kant ever got made, let alone air on network television. And one of the main characters on the show was a moral philosophy professor by the name of Chidi Adagonia. And on the show, he gave a lecture that became the basis for what so much of the show was about. And it was centered around this question, what do we owe each other? What do we owe each other? How are we responsible to each other? And in the universe of the good place, and I think the universe of Earth as well, is that we have an obligation to help one another. We have an obligation to push each other to be better than we are. That we're not solitary actors. We're this interconnected people that helps each other to be the best possible versions of ourselves. That we have a responsibility to God, and we have a responsibility to one another. We have a responsibility to be stewards of this kingdom of God. And as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We live out God's kingdom on earth. That is what we are faithful to. St. James Presbyterian Church is a member of the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. And as a member of this church, we have two governing documents. Book of Order and the Book of Confessions. The Book of Order is the rules and regulation we use to govern ourselves. The Book of Confession is a collection of documents announcing and proclaiming what it is we believe. They tell the story of how we understand God and what it means to be people of faith. These are documents that have been written over 2,000 years. They've emerged from different continents and different crises in the life of the church. One of them is from the late 30s, early 40s, called the Theological Declaration of Barman. And it begins with this powerful word. It says, Jesus Christ, as he is attested to us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God whom we have to hear and whom we have to trust and obey in life and in death. And we re reject the false doctrine that the church could and should recognize as a source of its proclamation beyond and besides this one word of God, yet other events, powers, historic figures, and truths as God's revelation. The Barman De Declaration emerged from pre-World War II Germany. It was written by a movement called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was watching in horror as the churches and religious leaders of Germany slowly traded their responsibility of being the church of Jesus Christ for the power, prestige, and support of the Nazi party. But these German churches believed that it was the Nazi party who was their best chance to maintain the power and position within German society. And they threw their support behind it. To this, the confessing church said no, for the church to be the church, there's only one voice we should listen to. There's only one voice that they were responsible to. And that was the voice of Jesus Christ. 
that in order for us to be the church, we must resist the temptation to be worried about only our position, place, and importance and value in the world. We must resist the temptation that it's something other than God that helps bring about the kingdom of God on earth. The second we forfeit our faithfulness to God in search of something else, we have ceased to be responsible tenants. Now, this power is very much a warning to religious leaders, be pastors, session leaders, professors, any men and women of faith who are in position of leadership within the church, because we're the people that have a high level of accountability and responsible to God for the direction which they lead the church. But I would argue, too, that this parable is a call to all of us, that we have a sacred duty to commit ourselves first and foremost to the fullness of God's plan for this world, that we cannot depend on something or someone else other than God to bring about God's kingdom in this world. One of the reasons why we gather together on a weekly basis, that we can worship together and be reminded of God's story for us and for this world. We're reminded that God is the one voice for whom we are responsible to and who we must listen. You join me in prayer. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for being a patient and long-suffering God. May we be responsible tenants who listen to you and give all praise and duty back to you. In your name we pray. Amen.